Good morning. This is Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on Seton Hall University's WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Well, I am so pleased to have back in our studio uh, my good friend, Mr. Leo Bateri, who is the author of his third book, Peer Novation. Leo, welcome to the program, and thank you for interrupting your extremely busy schedule to talk about this third book, Peer Novation. Well, I'm really excited to be here. Um, as you know, um, I um, did my graduate work at uh, Seton Hall. Uh, I'm a, a proud alum from, from and also, um, you know, I, I taught there for a number of years as well and loved it. And it's just such a great institution and uh, have so many great friends and um, just wonderful people that I met there. So uh, it's great to be on the show. I appreciate it. And, uh, and I was so pleased to meet you there as well. Yes, uh, when you were launching, I think your, your your first book. So let's let's talk about you know for our audience who don't know you, um, you gave them a little bit about your background. But let's 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 take a different tack. What is your specialty as as a uh, professional management consultant? Ah, uh, um, I try the best I can to get people to really surround themselves with great people and understand how to leverage the power that comes with that. Uh, I do a lot of work with um, CEO peer groups and key groups from key, for um, key executives. And basically these are groups of, of people that come together. So I'll use the example of a CEO group where these CEOs are all running their own companies and they all share that responsibility of you know, leading an organization. And so with that, they can come together and learn, you know, extraordinary things from one another, you know, sharing the values of what it means to be a good member, but at the same time, bringing such diverse perspectives to the table that they can teach each other a whole lot. And it all started with your first book, which was The Power of Peers. Is that correct? That's correct. And yeah, then you did a was... follow-up book on, and, and what was your follow-up book? What Anyone Can Do. What Anyone Can Do. Yeah. And of course, both interviews can be caught on our, our can be listened to on, on our podcast. That's right. So, so you're, you're, you're building on your hypothesis about the power of peers and now pure innovation. Um, what prompted you to, to, to write this, this book, Pure Innovation? So I'll, I'll go back um, to the first book briefly and just to say that when I was uh, with Vistage uh, worldwide and Vistage assembles and facilitates peer groups for CEOs and business leaders in 20 countries around the world, I led a brand refresh at the company then. And I would talk to people and we'd conduct focus groups and I'd ask CEOs all the time, you know, what do you do to learn and grow and bring new ideas into your company? And they would constantly tell me, well, I read books, I hire a coach, we have consultants, I go to these, you know, fancy executive development programs at Harvard and Stanford. And no one was really bringing up, at least in an unassisted fashion, this idea that, uh, that a peer group could be among those things. It wasn't even part of their consideration set. And I remember after we did a lot of work on this, going back to Vistage's CEO and later to its board of directors and said, look, you guys are trying to sell a Mercedes to someone who doesn't even know what a car is. Um, so I really wanted to say, you know, as a real leader in this area, why don't we step back and not write a hardcover brochure about Vistage, but let's look at the entire category. Let's look at Vistage, EO, YPO, people who run their own groups. And we looked at them here in the US uh, and around the world. And it was during that time where the objective of the book was really to crack the code or at least to 
um, you know, join others who had written about it as well, to, but to provide a narrative about what these peer groups are about and how and why they're so effective. So that was kind of the first stage of things. After the book was completed, I had a number of Vistage chairs who were basically the people who lead these Vistage groups who were excellent at asking questions, by the way. So I had about eight of them surrounding me firing all kinds of questions about what was next. And so two things really came from that. One, a workshop that I've since conducted now with CEO peer groups and cross-functional work teams about, on about 160 different times now over the past um, four years, and also took 2017 and uh, led a podcast uh, working with Randy Cantrell. Uh, and it was called the What Anyone Can Do podcast. The idea was we were going to interview people from various walks of life, business, sports, music, you know, whatever. And just these incredible scholars and, and people that we uh, talk to. And of course, over the course of that many interviews, right, I'm asking people, all right, um, did you get here all by yourself? You know, and they, everybody laughs at the idea that, you know, they had countless people help them along the way, right? I mean, it's just the way that was. Um Earlier in my life, I had read this book by Joe Henderson. He used to write for Runner's World. He was uh, one of the you know editors for there for a number of years, and he wrote this book. Um, and in it, he has a quote in it where he talks about how most successful people. He says, if you look at them, it isn't that they can do superhuman things. He says they basically do the things anyone can do, but most of us never will. So. The hypothesis, if you will, around this second book was that, all right, we're going to take these really successful people and basically say, you know what, if you surround yourself with the right people, you're going to do those little things anyone can do far more often. So there was that track a bit where you look at kind of how we can make a difference, how we matter, how we need to own, you know, our genius, if you will, if, as a lot of folks will talk about. And at the same time as I'm running all of these um, CEO peer groups, I'm really getting now a real feel for the fact that, you know what, this stuff isn't just about high performing groups, all this stuff works for high, for high performing teams as well. So you bring those two things together. And what you have is essentially a statement which says the power of we begins with me. And it's really about us as individuals accepting the responsibility we have to be really good teammates, whether that's in a group or a team in your organization or a team in sports or whatever that happens to look like. And that's really what the second book was about, because not everyone's going to join a peer group, but there's a lot of people that are part of a team somewhere, you know, um, particularly in organizations. And I think now more than ever, these teams need to work together really, really effectively if we're going to thrive in the future. And that was really, was really what inspired uh, writing the third book. But you, all of these things kind of have a way of um, coming together, not in a way that you always plan it, but, um, but I was really happy uh, the way it went. Beautiful. Thank you for that overview. Um, let's talk about peer innovation. And what is the primary objective of peer innovation that you, that you have for the reader? What, what is it that you hope that the reader will come away with after reading peer innovation? I think I'd like the reader to come away with this idea um, and a real appreciation for abundance. Um, the fact that when we work together, we are capable of so much. I think we're in a society right now that at least on the political front is incredibly divisive and it has spilled into other aspects of our lives. And I think it's really important to pause for a moment and say, you know, if we actually cooperate with one another and we work together and collaborate, we can do big things together uh, that we can't do alone. So when I think of peer innovation, it's really about people, people like me, 
as, as defined by peer and the combination of the word innovation, which is creativity realized, not just ideas, not just creativity, but things that are actionable, things that are put, um, you know, to, to work, to, you know, better our society. And so, um, you know, I, I really want that. I want people to really start thinking about what that might look like if we had clarity about what we wanted, what are the expectations of one another, and how do we go about working together to make it all possible? You know, there's something interesting that you just said. I like to highlight that when you talked about to the betterment of society, which is which is the overarching goal that everyone can, can go, yeah, that makes sense. If we're going to make society better, what is going to be my contribution? So that makes so much sense. Well, and we all have a unique contribution to make, you know, and I think that's this idea of the power of we begins with me, you know, recognizing that when we're on any team, it doesn't matter what it is. We're not there to just to fill a spot or you know, accept, play a certain role or whatever. We're there to make a difference. Um, when, when I'm working with CEO peer groups, for example, it's incredible how when one person doesn't make a meeting, what's lost from that conversation because of the unique perspective that person brings to the table, right? Um, no different than any team. If you had a sports team where practice was optional, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be very good, you know? So... <laughs> It's really a kind of a matter of uh, making the commitment to one another to be there, to be prepared, to be engaged while we are with one another, and to really be focused on something larger than ourselves. So what is your definition of peer innovation? Um, it really is, I think, um, you know, I think of it in terms of peer advantage. It is, it is you know, basically being more selective, strategic, and structured about the people you surround yourself with, plus systems thinking, right, which is kind of that broader and just non, you know, exclusively linear view of things, but recognizing there's a bigger world around us, and that the more that we communicate and collaborate, the more we can avoid unintended outcomes and, <laughs> and other such things like that. And I think from that can come really excellent work and come, you know, the the shared work product that comes from good teams. And so, you know, when, when, when you talk about, you know, as soon as you talk about the, the power of peers and, 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 and having the right people, it makes me think of the, the, the classic um, good to great, where he talks about getting the best people on the bus. Where does your peer innovation take it to the next level in your opinion? So, I think, well, first of all, and I think one of the important things to know about this book is it provides a framework, not a prescription, which is why I think it's it's really applicable to anyone in any kind of team. I'm not there to tell anybody what's best for your team or your team or someone else's. It's basically the idea, however, that if you get the right people as defined by you, right, about who needs to be on this team, um, you know, that you provide one another psychological safety which obviously is, is really essential. Uh, Google has certainly, um, you know, made that term, um, you know, much more popular. It's been around a long time, but as part of its Aristotle product project on teams, you know, there was this recognition and understanding that without psychological safety, you're pretty much nowhere. You know, you have to have people in an environment where they can speak up, speak out, take risks and do the kinds of things that allow for them and their teams to flourish. Um, third, we look at productivity pretty specifically um, and what that looks like. Fourth is a culture of accountability. 
And that's not accountability to the leader. It's basically accountability of team members to one another. And it is supported by this idea that the leader is not a part from the team, but a part of it. So instead of having me as the leader and, and you all sitting across the table and I'm kind of holding you accountable and making you play defense all the time, you know, the, the fact is that I am a part of the team. So we are all in this together. We all have our own sense of personal responsibility of how we're going to show up, how we're going to bring our A game and what that looks like for each of us in, in the role that we have. You know, somebody may have a specialty role. Maybe I've got the leadership role. Someone has another specialty role. We step up when we have to. We trust one another. And, you know, time and time again, when I speak with groups of um you know, CEOs, or I speak with uh, team members and ask them, what's the greatest team you've ever been part of? And what made that team so great? Those are the kinds of things that consistently come up. You know, that reminds me of a very, of a true story, um, where you had a group, <clears throat> a, a CEO had brought a group of executives together to be his executive team to, to launch a new product. And the team found themselves working on the weekends but the CEO was nowhere to be found. Hmm. After about four weekends, someone said, why isn't the CEO here? We, we, maybe we should bump him up to chairman and uh, let's let one of us to be the CEO. So long story short, they actually did that. And eventually um, the CEO even messed it up. He became chairman and still messed it up where all of the executives uh, decided to uh, resign all together and said, we've had enough because we're not getting the leadership. And, and that's very good where you say that you're, 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 you know, you're not having people to be defensive. I've never heard that phrase before where the, well, the or think about the, the, you know, the CEO you mentioned who wasn't showing up on the weekends clearly didn't, you know, regard themselves as a part of the team. They saw themselves as a part from it. Oh, that's their job. They go on the weekend, they do their thing. Um, and, and we all know from, um, I know my uh, time as a student at Seton Hall, when I was introduced to Jim Kuzis and Barry Posner's work, it's all about modeling the way, right? So you can't just <laughs> say, hey, you guys go do that, knock yourselves out, and I'll see you on Monday. You know, that's just, um, yeah, it's not really good. It's certainly not sustainable. Let's put it that that's way. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with my very good friend, Mr. Leo Bateri, who's the author of Peer Novation. And this is his third time on our show, on our show, and I'm very pleased that uh, he's agreed to come back. And we're talking about his book, Peer Innovation. And so, um, what is the leaning achievement cycle? Is it the learning achievement cycle? The learning achievements. The the learning achievement cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's my typo there. Um, okay. What is the, what is the learning achievement cycle? And what is the this? This was something. Cycle? Yeah, this was something we initially found um, in our work uh, in writing The Power of Peers. When you start thinking about what makes a group successful, and later we determine that it's the same thing that makes a team successful. If you think about it, I think maybe the great way to, uh, to put it is in terms of a sports team, if you look at great sports teams, those that are consistently they don't always may not always be winning the championship, but they're always in contention, right? They're always that type of team that is just there um, all the time. Those organizations typically do two things. One, um, they don't um, regard winning championships as the goal. They regard it as the reward. The goal is we come in and we get better every day and we work hard at doing it. And we try to make those incremental um 
you know, improvements all the time because we're committed to a level of excellence that at the end of the day really isn't about our competition. It's about the bar we set for ourselves and we continue to strive for that. We believe if we do that, we will put ourselves in a position to win championships. And that's kind of how that works and that happens. You know, and also, again, going back to the concept of the leaders, whether it's the coaches, general managers, the owners, they are all part of the team. Nobody's apart from it. You know, when a team wins a Super Bowl, everybody gets a ring, not just the players. So I, I think that type of attitude, um, you know, is is super helpful. And I think uh, it is no different in business when we think about what uh, what it takes and what that starts to look like. Right. And, you know, you, you look at some of the sports organizations that really just year after year just struggle, like the New York Jets. And you got to wonder <clears throat> what's happening in the, the front office that's affecting what's going on in the field. Yeah. Funny, isn't it? As little kids, you know, you just watch the team in the field. You'd, you'd root for your favorite players. You do all this other stuff. You didn't have any idea. Like, all right, there's like someone who owns this team and there's someone who has to manage it. There's someone who has to provide it the resources to be successful and all of the things that are involved uh, in supporting the players um, that you just have no idea about. And um, of course, later on, you kind of grow up and it factors in that, huh, there's, it's not just about a winning team. It's really a winning organization. That's right. That's right. You speak about the tragedy of the common archetype. How does this fit within peer innovation? So what I did was there are about 10, I would say, common or popular archetypes that um, are used uh, as part of systems thinking to create kind of a visual model for being able to look at a situation and what's going on. So there's two of them that I look at, and, and I had some stories around them as well. Uh, one of them is limits to growth. So in some cases, you might decide, and probably an easy way to think about this is that if I were trying to get on my bicycle and go from point A to point B, and it was taking me way longer than it should, but the, and so I could do one of two things. I could either try to do something that would help the bike go faster, or I could repair the road that I'm on, right? <laughs> because even if you repaired the bike, the road is still screwed up and eventually it's all gonna catch up with you anyway. So that's why sometimes you can make those adjustments that are kind of more about kind of attacking something with a hammer. Um, but, and you'll get some initial improvement, which is kind of the problem, but you're going to find long-term, you just, this is where you, you continue to get stuck. Tragedy of the Commons is an interesting one because I think most people can relate. If they work in a company where they've got an IT department, for example, or a marketing department that tends to be a resource for all kinds of departments around the company, right? The tendency is, all right, here's my little, you know, area. I need something for marketing. I'm not thinking about the fact that 40 other people need things for marketing too. I'm just thinking this is my personal marketing department. This is what I'm going to do. So that when they get hit by everybody all at the same time, and then people wonder why are things late? Why is the quality not as good? Why are all of these things happening in the organization? It's because they nobody's really seeing the entire system and what's going on. So I talk about those things as a way to just kind of think about, uh, you know, we 
And I start the book with the idea that we tend to grow up with a pretty narrow perspective of things. And that's understandable. We grow up in a certain neighborhood. We have, you know, just certain things that we're surrounded by that are limited by definition. And until we go outside the neighborhood and meet other people and do other things, we're going to find it difficult to get <laughs> to get exposed to something larger. I think in our company, the more we stay in our silos, the more we stay in our little neighborhood, if you will, the less likely we are to going to understand how we fit in it and how what the implications are, good and bad, uh, of our actions. So I, I think that um, what I wanted to do in Peer Innovation is really, you know, do what a lot of people have done prior. Obviously, systems thinking is not my idea, but I wanted to bring this forward as part of the way we go about uh, innovating in companies today. You know, your book has come out at a very interesting time being in the COVID-19. Yeah. <clears throat> what, what lessons have we learned and in, in what suggestions can you give to those CEOs who are trying to figure out, you know, I now have, you know, a workforce that is at home, not in the office, where <clears throat> we depended on so many uh, in-person cultural things. How do we create the best peer innovation environment in this virtual world? That's a great question. And I, I think I was fortunate in that I was still in the throes of writing the book when we weren't, went to shelter in place and all that, and all these things started to take, um, take place at that point. And so it, it was really interesting to watch what happened. And we can all sit around and, and hope for, you know, the day that we're all back in the office again or whatever. But the reality is that we're going to be in this state if or in this reality, this um, new reality, if you will, for a while now. And some have even decided that uh, that's how they're going to work going forward. Um, what was interesting, and I think what surprised a lot of CEOs early on, was that productivity was up. Um, I talked to more and more CEOs who were saying that in the opening months of this thing, that that here's here productivity is up 20%. It's up 25%. It's up even more in some cases. Now, this is something, by the way, they wouldn't have volunteered to do in a million years prior to this, right? Because there was this idea of, well, everybody's got to come into the office. You're going to see people working and coming and going and what they're doing and all. Next thing you know, everyone's at home and you've got a whole different dynamic taking place. I think there was um, a couple of good reasons for that. And one of them, um, I think typically people are really good at rallying around crisis, number one. Um, uh, second, when we go into a workplace, we go in and we go into the central workplace and we're all there, we're all just employees. And um, when all of a sudden you're on Zoom calls and assuming it's not a virtual background, right? What, what you're now doing is, is you get a window into all of your coworkers' homes. You know, you, you see, you know, dogs jumping on people's lap. You see kids crying in the background. You see all the artifacts that are behind them on, a, on the walls. Um, and you get a window into who they are in a way that I think has kind of tempered people's impatience. Um, I think we can kind of tap into our kind of shared humanity, if you will, this collective um, recognition that we're all just doing our best and we're, we're trying to juggle a lot of things right now, personally, professionally, whatever. We're going to cut each other a break. We're going to work hard. We're going to help each other when we need to. We're going to take breaks when we need to. Um, and I think that that was really helpful overall, um, you know, in terms of the productivity. The, the things that I think, though, that a lot of savvy CEOs recognized, however, 
was that there are some things to really be cautious about because you can't just think that that's sustainable without attending to things like people getting burned out, people feeling isolated, uh, people feeling insulated. You know, the, this idea that they're stuck doing their job, right? And they don't get the view of what's really going on anywhere else. So that kind of feels, you know, a uh, little rough. Um, they can feel obscure. You know, it was hard enough when you go into the office all the time to have everyone noticing that you're working hard and you're doing everything. And all of a sudden you're at your house and it's like, who, who's seeing what I'm, what I'm doing here? And, and there's that feeling of wanting to be, you know, seen in that regard. And, and of course, last but not least is this idea of how do people feel inspired? How do you go about doing that? So I think in many respects, um, and what we talk about in the book are some things that we've got to, we've got to address those things. We've got to attend to those things. We've got to do them differently than what we did when we were in the office, but um, it's just really important. And I think there's a lot of CEOs I spoke to that rather sheepishly would kind of say, you know, it's really made me recognize how few times prior to this, that I had started a meeting by just asking everyone, how are you doing? How are you today? How are you feeling? Where, you know, um, and that happens with much more regularity uh, right now. It isn't just about, hey, did you get that report in, you know, or did you hit this number or <laughs> whatever? I mean, we're kind of getting to some of the things that are really important. And I think there's, there's a lot of, and I think the CEOs in particular that believed themselves to be part of the team tended to be far more empathetic in these situations. And I think the employees have responded uh, positively to that. But I think we've got a ways to go in terms of, you know, learning our way through this. Every team is different. Every culture is different. Um, but I think just being attentive to it, and even within those five factors that I talk about in the book, you can be attentive to all of those things. Leo, believe it or not, we are running out of time. But before we go, I want to give you an opportunity to um, allow people know how can they get in touch with you how, if they want to. I mean, you know this topic so well, and I learned so much from you. How can someone get in touch with you? Sure. Well, the website is purenovation.co, or you can go to leobatari.com. Um, I'm you know, active on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, and Facebook pretty much. And um, always writing, uh, always doing a lot with CEO World um, magazine, uh, writing articles frequently for them. And I also have a podcast that uh, is called Peer Innovation that is part of the uh, shows on the C-Suite network and C-Suite radio and also, um, you know, on everywhere else, iHeartMedia, Spotify, Apple, you name it, it you'll, you'll find it. So yeah, definitely um, feel free to reach out and stay in touch with um, what we're doing. And if I can be helpful in any way, then that's what we'll do. And so I always want to give my guests the final words. Um, and what were those final words you want to leave with our guests today about peer innovation? Uh, absolutely that the power of we begins with you. And for you to say to yourself, the power of we begins with me. I think really recognizing how much of an impact you can have on your team, on your organization, and in, um, you know, and just for yourself, I think is, is really powerful. And I think the more you own that understanding that you're on this planet, not just to fulfill a spot, but to make a difference, um, 
I think uh, that'll be a good way to go out. And by the way, I have to ask you this question. Have you consulted with any sports teams? Sure. Anybody yes. you want to share? <laughs> well, it, not, not in terms of, a, I, I will tell you a, a sports team that uh, we've researched quite a bit um, for obvious reasons. And I know this is not going to make Seton Hall Pirate fans happy, but it was University of Connecticut women's basketball team. Um, because quite frankly, it's hard to find a program in college sports, men or women, that has been in dominant as they've been and how they created their culture and what that looks like. There's some extraordinary stories, by the way, about that team, about Gino Oriema, and about how the players are with one another that I think we could all learn a lot from. Now, are you going to write a book about that? Not specifically, I don't think. I've actually mentioned them in all three books. Okay. Uh, there's some story, there's something that comes up or whatever, and, um, and I do share the books um, you know, with the coaching staff over there. So, and I'll be sending them this one shortly. So, yeah. What a, what, really, what a phenomenal three books that you have. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank our guest, Mr. Leo Bateri, who is the author of Peer Novation. And this is his third book. You must pick it up. And it's also, you have an audio book that's coming out of, on Peer Novation. Dude, just recorded it with uh, Game Day Media out in San Antonio uh, in, in conjunction with um, the C-Suite Network. And uh, great fun. Uh, great uh, team of people over there and just uh, just loved it. But yeah, I read my own book this time. I didn't do it the first two times, read it this time, had a ball. And uh, if you're a nonfiction writer, read your own book. There you go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there you go. The last words from Mr. Leo Bateri, the author of Pure Innovation and a fellow Seton Hall alum. I uh, want to thank him for coming on the program. And um, I want to wish everyone to have a great weekend, a great evening, great morning, wherever you are. And remember, leadership begins with you. WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net.